The Guardian. Hello and welcome to the all-new Film Weekly podcast from the Guardian Film Team. Ben Lee is off on holiday or something today, so you've got me, Andrew Pulver, and I'm joined by Peter Bradshaw and Henry Barnes. This week we will be taking a deep dive into the new Pixar film, Finding Dory, unmasking the identity of the documentary about author J.T. Leroy, and discussing at endless lengths and probably voting on the merits of The Commune, the new film from Thomas Winterberg. But first, we'll be trying desperately to remember anything at all about the new Jason Bourne spy film. Jason Bourne, it's called. It's just been hacked. Could be worse than Snowden. Facial recognition got a hit. Jesus Christ, that's Jason Bourne. Why would he come back now? This is the fifth one in the series, and Matt Damon is back with Paul Greengrass in the director's chair. It's been billed as a sort of origin story, with Bourne coming back in from the cold after his former contact, Nicky Parsons, tries to do a Snowden and upload secret CIA files onto the internet. Tommy Lee Jones, as the director of the CIA, isn't too happy and sets the agency in the shape of Alicia Vikander, cyberboffin, on the case, but plays a double game by sending a hitman after them too. Very complicated. Um, Peter, this is obviously, more obviously, a post-Snowden type of thriller than the previous Bourne films. The intersection of tech and security cultures... Does it work? Yes, it's, it, it kind of is and isn't a post-Snowden film. The interesting thing about the, about the Bourne series is they actually had a big thing about Guardian investigative journalism back in 2007, before we'd ever heard of Edward Snowden. So the Bourne franchise can claim, in a way, to be mm. very prescient on the subject of Snowden and not to be behind the curve in any way. I thought this was quite entertaining, quite amusing. Uh, It always looks exactly the same. The spin, the modern social media, data mining, privacy breaching Edward Snowden spin that's put on it puts a kind of pretty superficial gloss of modernity on what we already know is going to be the case, that basically Jason Bourne is out in the cold. He's kind of a renegade he's a patriot he's a man of action but on the other hand he's kind of a rebel and they don't know whether to bring him in or rub him out and that seems to have been the case with really every single Bourne film I can ever remember watching even with the fourth one which didn't have Bourne in it that had Jeremy (laughs) Renner in it Uh, this is the fifth Bourne film but it bears saying that this is only the fourth one with with um with Matt Damon in I mean this is the first one that hasn't got one of those Bourne renunciation speculum type titles um yes uh what so what is what is it what what does it mean just being called Jason Jason Bourne Bourne, I suspect I don't know I I suspect they're kind of drawing a line under it in a way uh I remember the same sort of thing when Sylvester Stallone took part in a film called Rocky Balboa that was it you know that was him Mm. the summation of everything and this is what it's going to be although the ending is, and it's no spoiler to say, it's kind of left open. That is to say, if Matt Damon fancies it, and if it does well enough at the box office, who knows, he could well come back for some weird Bourne Plus title. I don't know. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's entertaining, but it's the, it's the same thing, but just souped up a little bit more. It's as if the, it's just there's a little bit more athleticism. Everything is a little bit more pumped up. I mean, do I detect you think it's getting a little stale? Or? I'm not sure that it is stale in a way. It's always very well done. It's always socked over with absolute conviction and verve 
and, and a kind of ferocity in a way. Mm. Um, there's always something slightly ridiculous about it because he's always he always seems to be penniless he's living off grid he's making a living on the bare knuckle fight circuit somewhere on the border between greece and albania yeah, and yet when the call comes he seems to be in a position to zip all over the world on long haul flights <laughs> without any problem whatsoever less less problem than i have and i've got a fully functioning kind of debit card he doesn't have any problem at all and there's a moment where he comes into the united states and uh cia chief dewey played of course by tommy lee jones goes how the hell did he get into the United States? And somebody said, somebody got him a visa, sir. And you're thinking, wow, somebody got him a visa. Somebody inside the agency? Perhaps we better think about who that was, hadn't we? But then they just forget about it. It's presumably quite important. <laughs> who is it within our organization that's helping this guy? So it is slightly ridiculous that he's this incredible globetrotter zooming around the world and then finally winding up in, in Las Vegas for an outrageous finale. Okay, well, Hen, you, you were moaning this morning about it supposedly being an origin story. I mean, do we find out much about Bourne? Yeah, I mean, I thought that was the point, right? Everything from the title down suggests that this is the backstory. And there is a bit of that family issues, daddy issues that come into it. But not really. He's essentially still a punching machine, which for something that is supposed to be showing that this is how Treadstone started and this is why the guy is rejecting all this, it doesn't really give you any of that. He also doesn't do that with Vincent Cassell's character, The Asset. Um, they're supposed to be <laughs> setting them against each other. It's supposed to be a real, you know, butting of heads of two guys mm. who have an out a personal grievance against each other. But they really don't, as far as I can tell. And as far and in my opinion, that was the good thing about the Bourne films is that these assets were programmed people. It was never personal. It was just about them being used as a tool by the government to set out to assassinate somebody and often each other. But they had a, a weird respect for each other because of that. And you got that feeling in the first Freeborn films, particularly. Now, when you make it about this personal clash between two of these robo killers, it doesn't really work for me because you're supposed to then see some sort of emotion and. and and a reason for their behaviour behind all of that. But you never get any of that. You just get Matt Damon looking stern and gritty in, in these settings. I have to say the great thing about this film is that Paul Greengrass is back to doing what he does best, which is this intensely kinetic... Uh, camera work and the action sequences. I thought the Greek riot scenes in this yeah. were brilliant, mm. like really well staged, like yeah. amazingly choreographed. Great, it reminded stuff. me of Bloody Sunday, his great yeah. Meister yeah. work, Bloody Sunday. It actually, <laughs> put, actually put me in mind yeah. of that. And if you want to go to the cinema for that kind of spectacle, this works. But if you're looking for any kind of character or plot or narrative, it doesn't really seem to be any of that. It's just serving you up Matt Damon punching people. Yeah, and I have to say, I realised it was going to be Vincent Cassel playing the asset role about five seconds before he arrived. <laughs> You, know, oh. you see the guy <laughs> hunched in a kind of semi-lit room watching football on television. And you always know in, if it's an American <laughs> Hollywood studio movie and they're watching soccer, you know, bad guys or irrelevant guys, not good guys. And you saw, yes, it's the, the Euromeister of absolute deracinated scorn and hatred, Vincent Cassel. <laughs> you see that great triangular face and you think, oh boy, he's not here, he's not here to make nice. Next up is Finding Dory, Pixar's sequel to the 2003 hit Finding Nemo with the same director Andrew Stanton on board. Ellen DeGeneres returns as Dory, the blue tang fish with short-term memory disorder. And she gets separated from her parents and ends up in an aquarium and with the help of an octopus, a grumpy octopus played by Ed O'Neill of Married with Children fame, does her best to get home again. Migration is about going home, home, which is where you're from. How do the stingrays all know where to go? Instinct. Something deep inside you that feels so familiar that you have to listen to it. <gasps> my mom, my dad, I have a family. 
never forget you, Dory. What if I forget you? I miss them. You know what that feels like? Yes. Then we better get going. Finding Dory broke quite a lot of box office uh, records. Uh, not not absolutely major ones, but sort of one or two, including best ever opening weekend for an animated film. Now, does that does that is it as sensational as some of those records would imply? Um, no, it's not a sensational film, but it is a it's a good film. It's a good Pixar film. It's it's a classic kind of Pixar writing a film for grown ups and slightly forgetting that perhaps this film might be for children as well. In my opinion, in that there's a lot of soul searching, no pun intended, of Dory looking back at her childhood. Essentially, it was, what is it? It's not childhood, is it? For fish, minnowhood. But there's an awful lot of flashbacks to tiny, cute Dory with huge eyes having a, a moment and finally having a memory and realising where these where her parents are and, and following all that and it, it's quite dark and quite full of grief those moments and it felt a tiny bit like first ten minutes of Up to me but without any of, of the lightness that comes after that and I did wonder that sometimes I, that Pixar might be forgetting that this is supposed to be a film for kids essentially and Hank doesn't really do anything to remedy that either he's mm. a kind of misanthropic octopus who's uh, grumpy and, and disgusted with life. I mean, there re- there are elements of it that involve lighter characters, but they come some way into the film. Not that that does this film a disservice. I think it's still a decent uh, Pixar animation, and it's still got some heart to it. It just felt like it was probably being aimed at uh, younger teens rather than the kind of eight, nine, ten-year-olds. I mean, it's one of these weird things. I think a lot of uh, recent films have, recent, so particularly Disney films, there's the sort of central relationships to do with kids and their parents and uh, this seemed to follow in that track I mean is that part of what you were saying that maybe it sort of made more in parents in mind a little bit but then the, considering the parents are absent for much of it, it it did feel a little bit lost on occasion and also Nemo and Marlon are, are on screen in their kind of own little side story which didn't really work for me because there's not much going on to their plot but I mean Peter what did you make of it I thought it was a perfectly decent film which appeared to have been cloned from the first one I mean there are so many echoes and similarities it seemed to be almost like a parallel film rather than a sequel uh, I, I'm not sure that I agree that it's darker or, or dark at all uh, compared with the first one the first one was about somebody's mother dying somebody's mother dies actually in the course of the present day action in Finding Nemo in Finding Dory Nemo's dead mother is never mentioned at all nobody ever alludes to the fact that his mother is uh, still dead um, and so uh, there's something different going on there. It seems to me that it was a kind of redoubling of the search myth that Dory has to go in search of her parents and then Nemo and Marlin have to go in search of her. So she is both the helpless person who is uh, who needs to be found and yet somehow she's got to shoulder the burden of a kind of adulthood and find her own parents as well. That's interesting in a way. But I felt that the the movie was trying to find a way of inflating the premise of the original, which had this wonderful idea of they had the massive ocean and then suddenly she's imprisoned in, of all things, a dentist fish tank, which is a very funny idea. Now, because everything has to be bigger and better, that's a gigantic aquarium based apparently on the Monterey Bay Aquarium in, in California, which is really like that. And bigger isn't necessarily better at all. In fact, it's almost not much different, in a way, from the ocean that they've just got away from. It's The place is so gigantic and so spectacular that the effect of this place isn't that different in narrative terms from the effect of the ocean, in a way. 
They do so, have Sigourney Weaver doing that. Yeah, they have Sigourney Weaver. And in a way, that's so weird because you think, <laughs> oh my God, they get, she's going to come on. They're going to have an animated rendition of her face any second now. And well, I'm not going to give it away. But um, it's it's not bad. It's uh, it's it's as I say, it's like a kind of it's like when you log onto Amazon and it says. If you like that, then you're going to like this. And really, I got a kind of Amazon feel from from this film. I mean, there, there, there was quite a bit of talk beforehand about possible sort of what we might call progressive elements, not supposed lesbian couple showing up at one point. Did any of that actually emerge? No, I don't. So, I don't know. It seems this is the new thing now. Is does it have a gay relationship? No, I don't think it does. I think if it did, it kind of passed me by. I mean, it's interesting yeah, because of Ellen DeGeneres' yeah. very famous sensational involvement in this franchise back in 2003 when you know the question of whether or not she was going to say she was gay was was a huge huge deal back in the day and i i had i don't get that at all maybe the her own personality has leapfrogged the whole question now let's move on to author the jt Leroy story this is a documentary about the bizarre story of jt Leroy, aka laura albert and the creation of the pseudonymic author who who published among others, two very successful books, Sarah and one called The Heart is Deceitful Above All Things. He doesn't like to show his face to the press. JT, I just thank you from the bottom of my heart. Some people think that JT Leroy might not really exist. My name's Laura Albert, and I am the writer, JT Leroy. Now, Laura Albert's story went beyond... Um, just doing a George Eliot type literary alias. There was a lot of impersonation, a lot of faking, a lot of deception going on. Um, now, Peter, there, there's there's lots of discussion that can be had, have been had already about as to whether Laura Albert's unmasking affects the quality of the yeah, work that exactly. produced. But what I was going to ask you, what, what did you actually make of the film itself? Um, it's very much, seems to me, you know, it's Laura Albert ex- interviewed at. Yeah, extreme length, extraordinary talking length. What, about what she did and and giving her version of events. I mean, do you, do you believe her? Uh, I'm still not sure whether I still 100% believe her. I think she's a compulsive fantasist and myth maker. I'm still not sure that I'm totally down with it. I think this is an interesting film because it's an interesting story. Um, I think there's something a bit dodgy about the film. For example, they perpetually are playing to you tape recordings of telephone conversations that appear to have. And first of all, I thought, wait, is this an answering machine or what? Because there are not just telephone conversations that she appears to have tape recorded, but actual live conversations. So conversations which don't appear to have happened on the telephone. Now, had she tape recorded all those conversations herself? Uh, and if so, why? She's never questioned about it. Or is this, dare I say, a dramatic reconstruction on the part of the film? I don't know. That's that's a kind of footnote to why I'm a little bit uneasy about this film. It's an interesting story, and so... It is an interesting film, but I wish that it hadn't have let her go on and on and on and on, monologuing incessantly. And I wish they'd just interviewed at greater length the woman that she persuaded to play J.T. Leroy. I mean, what on earth can this woman have felt about herself after what appears to have been over about five years of this extraordinary imposture, which involved having a kind of romantic or even sexual relationship with Azir Argento. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what yeah. on earth did that make? How, what kind of, what effect does that have on you? And that seems to me the story of this film. And it completely, it was ignored because Laura Albert presumably has absolute control over it. So she just goes on and on and on in this very questionable and exasperating way. And nobody ever challenges her, say, well, look, when did you decide to do this? 
and and how and and how exactly did you fake it and come on what was your husband's role in this and I, I wanted to know a little bit more about the gritty details and I also wanted to know maybe they could have done it by interviewing a literary critic or something they say well look now we know the truth and it's true Laura Albert always build these books as fiction. She wasn't saying that they were memoirs. I mean, at the same time, roughly the same time, there was a book called A Million Little Pieces by James Frey, yeah, which was billed yeah, as yeah. a memoir. And like J.T. Leroy, it was part of the misery memoir era where people were publishing loads of this sort of stuff and people were starting to think, is it all for real? Mm. But that was billed as a memoir and he was unmasked and disgraced. This is much more complex because she was it was billed as fiction although undoubtedly it was being sold and marketed as sort of based on fact and that is why the author herself himself herself had to be present in this kind of imposture so whether or not she's done anything wrong he she has done anything wrong is a moot point uh, i'm not sure that she has although legally of course, she signed a movie deal under the name of J.T. Leroy and was done for fraud. Yeah. <laughs> so in that legal sense, yeah, she did do something wrong. I just felt it was very indulgent. Clearly, Laura, Al Laura Albert was in charge of it in some producer's sense. So it was very, very tolerant of her droning on and on and on. And I wanted a cold, clear, objective view to cut through all this. Yeah, Hen, I mean, what, what did you make of it in terms of its sort of balance and objectivity? I mean, uh, it was very much in her corner. Yeah, I agree with that. It reminded me a little bit of The Imposter, that documentary from me a few years yeah. ago, where yeah. like, the, yeah. the protagonist's view is vital and you need it, but you mm. also need something to cut through that and counterbalance it a little bit, i.e. anybody else on camera. <laughs> yeah, exactly, any anybody time. at all. Yeah. And, and what you know, the people that were missing from this were the people that were essentially frauded by her in terms of their personal relationships. So yeah. this is right, you have an awful lot of tape conversations with people like Billy Corgan, who did eventually find out what the true story behind it and supported her anyway. But you don't actually get any real first-hand reaction from them now, looking back at it, finding out what it was like to go through that process. You know, yeah. I mean, even if you were, weren't brutally hurt by her being dishonest by you, it, to you, it's still very interesting to talk about that now in reflection and feel talk about how you feel fooled by it. And it's mm. also interesting in that it's pre-social media, it's pre this world where we create new versions of ourselves online all the time anyway and she was essentially doing that before anybody else had and doing it on a widely publicized scale and yep. to hear about that would have been very interesting i still think the story is fascinating it's you know you can't deny that this is a story that you you want told to you i just think that there is a problem in the telling i mean do you think it, the film's guilty of trying to be a bit hip which is what i thought like, they didn't want to be the filmmakers themselves didn't seem to want to be kind of phased out in any way by what was yeah. uh, by what Laura Albert was sort of yeah, up to. Maybe, and maybe they felt it would be a little bit crass to roll out the Shirley Mansons and the Billy Corgans and the Courtney mm. Loves and, and you know, say, oh, these are all the celebrity connections that loved it so much because we want to be cooler than that. But the, the film does, you do find the film wanting because of that, I think. And, you know, I, as Peter says, she, she was done for fraud in the end. <laughs> yeah. It was a serious, <laughs> quite a serious deal. It was like several hundred thousand dollars. It's yeah. not like yeah. somebody like Dave Eggers, you know, heartbreaking work, a staggering mm. genius, who, who points out the fiction that's happening in the time that it's actually happening and invites you to mm. celebrate that and says, you know, this is my life story, but it has been broadly fictionalized for you. She did sell these stories essentially as real life to people who were susceptible to them you know and it I mean the flip side of that is it's saying something about celebrity culture that's obsessed with tragedy and particularly with working class tragedy that they're never going to understand so it's interesting from that point of view but it would have been interesting to hear those celebrities talk about that themselves and also what about JT Leroy's own sort of impact on the film world where you I mean I looked up your review of the of Asia Argento's film of The Heart is Sick from you gave that a massive kicking 
Yeah, uh, <laughs> probably, probably, probably in retrospect, a good idea. I didn't want also, to go on about that, to be honest also, with you. But also, but also the um, which I passed me by, which is that she was uh, he, she, he was credited with um, writing the first script to Elephant, the yeah, Van film, which well, I have to say I thought was a great film uh, at the time. Um, it's not, I mean, it, even I mean, I don't know how true it is. I mean, JT Leroy is credited as an associate producer on the film, so obviously must have had some yeah. involvement in it. I'd be interested to hear. Particularly from Gus Van Zandt, did he was he upset when he found out? Did he kind of suspect or not care? Because I got the impression that the film is trying to imply that Gus Van Zandt kind of suspected it isn't that bothered. I'm not sure whether that's true or not. He he definitely seems to have used her first scene of the killing in the library in Elephant, and I hadn't grasped that before watching this documentary. I hadn't grasped yeah. that at all, and that is really interesting. And her work apparently work on Deadwood is is interesting as well because Laura Albert. Apart from anything else, is clearly a talented mm. and prolific writer. I mean, she, she may have multiple personality disorder, but nevertheless, she is a very talented, committed, somebody with a real sense of vocation in a weird way. So there is something to be said, certainly said for her kind of warped professionalism. The last film we're looking at this week is The Commune from Danish director Thomas Winterberg. It's set in early 70s in Copenhagen and features Ulrich Thompson and Trina Durholm as a married couple who decide to open up the very large house that he inherits um, to a communal lifestyle as a way to refresh their boring middle-aged lives. Now, Hen, Thomas Winterberg is very well known for Festen and The Hunt, as well as the recent Far From Edding Crowd. What, what, what do you make of this? Is it in the same league as those? Uh, it's definitely not in the same league as Festen or The Hunt. It might be in the same league as Far From the Madding Crowd in terms of the tone. It's a little bit soft and cuddly, this, for me, really. I mean, any film about a commune, you assume there's going to be plenty of bonking and there's going to be plenty of romantic strife between them. But actually... This film paints that as the least interesting thing about it, to its detriment, actually. There's a lot of spice here that the film is really missing. And it doesn't even examine the social relationships between a community and the way that The Hunt did that made The Hunt so fascinating and so brittle and so bitter a film. And and I love The Hunt. I think Mads Mikkelsen in that is superb. And, yeah. But also, Vinterberg's film is superb. He, he manages to look at how communities can so easily turn against an outside element and create an outside element. And this film seems to be screaming out for that kind of treatment. But in actual fact, it, it's rather soft-boiled, actually. It doesn't really seem to go anywhere or do anything. And there's no illustration of anybody in the commune other than the central love triangle. And even then, that's kind of weakly painted. Um, I think Trina Deerholm is, is brilliant in it. She's, she's really good and she holds up. And she manages to carry the vast majority of the emotion in the film because she's the, the one character the stuff actually happens to. But for the, vast, for the vast majority of the film, there really isn't a lot going on. And you just feel like it's wanting basically any kind of drama. Yeah, I mean, this is based, you know, apparently based on Vinterberg's own sort of childhood yeah. in a commune. And it started off, I think, some kind of improvised play that he, uh, he did a few years ago. So uh, do you think it's sort of... It, it, I mean, Peter, in his review... So it was a little soapy. Little, yeah, uh, it is very I mean, soapy. Does, yeah. It is very soapy. I mean, does it suffer from a bit too much dialogue, a bit too much stage improv type yelling at each other? It might It might also be a, a hint of nostalgia really creeping in there. I mean, it's interesting that Vinterberg's cast himself as a girl in this and that the, 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 there's been a gender swap. Not that he actually says much about that either, really. I mean, the impression you get is that 
communal living is a place that can get complicated, but actually it's rather lovely, really. And it just doesn't say anything past that. And I mean, the one thing that for me could have sparked some sort of interest is this idea that this is in the 1970s when people are supposed to be much more liberal about their sexual and social relationships. And yet there's still a, a lot of chauvinism kicking around, particularly in the, the lead male character. He's basically uh, something of a dictator in the house or the closest thing they can get to it. And because he has ownership over the actual physical property of the building, he's the person who believes that he can then put his will onto everybody else, even when that involves moving his girlfriend in. And that was potentially interesting. Again, it didn't really go anywhere. It just got stemmied. I, I wonder if he, he originally envisioned it for television, to be honest yeah. with you. I think a lot of this might have been more dramatically satisfying if it was split into three episodes. And the kind of the more diffuse nature of what was happening might have made more sense. Otherwise, we're waiting for some big central punch, which mm. never quite comes, well, really. The, to without spoiling it, there is a, a big punch at the end, which seemed completely outlandish well, yeah. in, in the context of what we'd seen before. But you're certainly hoping for something in the central texture of the film to yeah. make sense of what was happening. Um, it really reminded me, in a way, of a much more softcore version of Bokeh of Barbed Wire. Do you remember the TV show in the 1970s, which was a, a big kind of but 70s... Well, <laughs> yeah, mm, I'm, I'm showing my age a bit, but yeah. they, that was a, it was with <laughs> when Frank Finley was a bit of a handsome man, handsome young man. Uh, it was all about sort of sexually kind of getting it on and letting it all hang out. But as Hen says, you sort of went it well. If that's what it's going to be about, then let's let that what it that's let's let's have that as what it's about, and not this vague kind of vague kind of tootling along. We're constantly we on, we're constantly on this podcast having to go at the French for being too sexy or sexy yeah. for no reason. I've, suddenly, yeah. I thought Vinterberg could have been a bit more he could French. Have, I, yeah. I felt that. Yeah, but he, I thought you know, is this film the most you know one of the most Scandinavian things ever? I mean, it's like you look at. Um, uh, the together, you know, the film well, about commune. They, yeah. they, you know, the Scandies like films about <laughs> commune living, don't they? Yeah, but that was a loads more funny and more to the point about sexual transgression and uh, monogamy and all those sort of things. I think that had lo loads more to say, really. This, I don't know. I got the impression that Vinterberg, it's still interesting and his leading fem female role is so good in it. But basically, I think he's taken his foot off the gas pedal, really, with this compared to his great work. Even compared to Far From the Madding Crowd, which, I don't know, well, Far From the Madding Crowd has a story which brings its own kind of sinew, whereas this, I don't know, I, I, think, I think it was just, uh, it was a little bit, it was a, it was a little bit dilute, really. It just, not, nothing very much happening in it. Well, thank you very much, Peter. Thanks, Hen. That's, uh, I think that's all we've got time for this week, as they say on all sorts of radio shows. Um, <laughs> Where they say that's all we've got yeah. time for this week? I don't know. <laughs> well, I have to read this bit out. Remember to check out theguardian.com slash film for in-depth reviews of all the week's releases as well as the latest news, features and trailers. You can like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and subscribe to the Film Weekly podcast on iTunes. We're taking a short summer break next week, um, but the show will be back on August 12th, hopefully with somebody who knows what they're doing in my chair, Ben Lee, I should think. Uh, and I'm going to leave you with a quote from Finding Dory. It says... I remember it like it was yesterday. Of course, I don't really remember yesterday all that well. <laughs> oh, don't Andrew. Oh, baby. Oh, baby. Then it fell apart. Fell apart. Oh, baby. Oh, baby. Then it fell apart. It fell apart. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.